Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Guy here. You're listening to an audio broadcast of Market Call. That's MRKT Call. It's a daily video series I do with Dan Nathan every Monday through Thursday live at 1 p.m. Eastern. We break down the big market-moving headlines and offer trade ideas. Each week, we're joined by our friends Carter Worth of Worth Charting and Liz Young, that's EY of SoFi, for their investment analysis. So check it out. And if you like it, follow at Market Call on on Twitter and subscribe to Risk Reversal Media's YouTube page so you never miss an episode. You hear that guitar riff, an homage to the great Gary Rossington, an original member of Leonard Skinner who passed away at 71 years old. The other day, as you know, Danny, I am a huge Skinnerd guy, but you see Danny Moses there. And folks, I will tell you that I met Danny a few years ago and I've yet to find somebody as rigorous as Danny Moses in terms of understanding markets, but not only understanding, but actually taking the time necessary to do the deep dives to create tremendous opportunities. So this is Market Call. It is Tuesday, March 7th. One o'clock Eastern time. This market call brought to you by CME Group, Danny, where risk meets opportunity. Of course, our data provider is FactSet. Dan Nathan is in Arizona at a Moody's conference, but the two of us together, and this is a perfect day as it turns out for us to be doing market call with one another. Great to be here. Great to fill in for Dan. So, Well, you, yep. are, you are not filling in. You are, you are a, a, a huge component of what everything that we're doing. And look, Let's get right to it, because obviously top of mind today is Jerome Powell. So let's slide it, Earl, as they say, and take a look at some of the headlines coming out of this. And I think he's pretty clear if we go to the Jerome Powell slide, he's pretty clear in terms of what he's wanting to do. And Danny, you said it earlier. You said this sounded not like you not like a testifying in front of Congress, but this sounded like one of the Fed meetings. It was a Fed press conference. Clearly, um, he had one on February 1st. Obviously, then he was a little bit you want to call it dovish there. Then the Fed minutes brought it back a little bit. The data we've seen in the last few weeks has been certainly on the inflationary side. And we previewed this on our, on the tape uh, Thursday night, which, which was released Friday to pay attention to this meeting. Mm-hmm. And this was a press conference. And so our next meeting now is on you know March 22nd, I believe, is the next time we're going to hear from them. We may hear fits and starts you know, between now and then. But this was certainly a kind of hawkish tone for certain. And it caught the market off guard. I mean, the chart you just showed on Fed funds, the chances of 50 basis points literally are now at 70%. And that's really what's driving the market here today. Let's take a look at that. I mean, we'll look at the bar graph in a second, but the percentages now that indicate what the market thinks, and this is difficult to see, but if you take a look at it, you know, we're looking five, five and a quarter, 69%. I mean, that is pretty remarkable that the market's coming around to the way you've been thinking for quite some time. I guess- my thing is, I'm surprised, again, you know, 
understanding that I'm bearish, I've been bearish, I've been right, I've been wrong, whatever. I mean, that's the market. But I'm surprised that the market hasn't figured this out a lot sooner, Danny. Yeah, it's just, you know, to be fair, I didn't think that they would go 50 basis points. Maybe they still may not. I think there's really only 75 basis points left because what I believe is we're going to start to see degradation in earnings, mm -hmm. economic activity here as we lag kind of the beginning of the rate height cycle from a year ago, right? So we just, there's no historic precedent for this, what we're about to see. So I really think what it comes down to, Guy, is earnings in the S&P. And if you want to just stick an 18 multiple in general, just on the market, some people are at as high as 235, some people are as low as 190, let's just call it, you know, 220-ish. We're kind of fair value right here. Mm -hmm. I, I tend to be lower than that because I think the impact of the rates have on businesses, right? It's one thing to try to gauge what it does to fix income market, what it does to certain, but there are certain companies that are impacted and there is going to be an impact here. Make no doubt about it to consumer demand. And I believe we're going to start to see that in droves. So yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I couldn't agree more. And we'll debate whether or not the market deserves an 18 multiple or it, whether in fact 225 ish is going to actually come in in terms of earnings. But let's look at the bar graph in terms of the CME FedWatch tool, because I think this illustrates it a little clearer in terms of where we are in March and where we are now here in May, or what we're looking for in March and then subsequently what we're looking for in May. I mean, I think the market, again, is starting to figure out. When you can see it visually like this, I think it makes sense. Uh, let's take a look at the S&P chart. This is obviously something we've talked about for a while. We look at it through the lens of futures here on CME Day, but we're right at this uptrend line, Danny. You know, I know you don't, you, you look at technicals, you obviously you look at fundamentals as well, but you try to marry the two. I look at this line, I think one of, um, if you go back yesterday, one of Mike Wilson's reasons for being tactically very short-term bullish was the fact that the S&P traded down to 39.40, effectively the 200-day moving average, and bounced. We also bounced on that uptrend line that we've drawn for quite some time now. The question is, and the question I posit to you is, was that it? You know, was that rally yesterday where we almost got up to 4,100, I think 40.75 or so, was that it? And is the market finally realizing that, hey, wait a second, um, these guys and gals at the Federal Reserve are serious, and we are seeing that degradation that you spoke of? Yeah, I think I said, I've been saying, I think we've seen the highs for the year, at least the first six to nine months of the year in terms of where the market was, 42.50, whatever is on that chart there. So this is going to be really tough to get there given the current environment. And Mike Wilson, I know, was making even admittedly cutesy trade. And I talked to Vincent Daniel on that yesterday just to keep my sanity. And he called it a case of bullmonia because eventually you just get swept in because mm -hmm. you have you fight the tape, you fight the tape. But hearing him this morning on Bloomberg, he didn't really change his tune, just calling for near-term bounce. I know you guys had Carter on market call yesterday, kind of said the same thing. We're kind of stuck in this range. These 40 points, 80 points, 100 points are somewhat meaningless because you're going to need to know what the longer-term trend is going to look like. And not technically. I'm talking about earnings trends. And that, I think, is what the focus is going to be. We're in this time period right now where you'll get some earnings reports coming. And we're you know certainly six weeks away from seeing kind of first-quarter numbers. I would expect some pre-announcements to start coming here, you know, in late March, maybe right around the Fed. Remember that Walmart warning shot that they gave the Fed back in July of last year was kind of the first shot across the bow. I wouldn't be surprised if we see kind of more of those type things in real time. So. Take a look at the NASDAQ futures as well, the, the, the minis here on the NASDAQ 100. I mean, again, it's a very similar chart. I mean, the fact, again, that we held the 200-day moving average, we bounced. This one, to me... I don't know. It, this one, it leaves me scratching my head a bit. And I'm going to get somewhat granular here 
if we could pull up an NVIDIA chart quickly on the fly. And again, a stock that was 108, I think, at its low. Might have gotten to 103, but let's just call it 108 or so is low in October. A stock that's now pushing north of 240. So I can do that math. I mean, this stock has now rallied well over 100%. I bring up NVIDIA because we're clearly in a rising interest rate environment. Uh, it's clearly a stock now close to 20 times revenues, which is expensive. Yet this defies logic. Now, if we go back to the you know, the NASDAQ E-minis and take a look quickly, we'll see it's hanging in here on large part due to a handful of these names that are sort of basically not only treading water, but doing extraordinarily well. I guess my question to you, because you look at these things, you know, how long can these valuations for some of these high flyers last, understanding that NVIDIA said, you know, they're at the forefront of AI and, you know, pay no attention to the, some of the shittier businesses that we've had last quarter, pay attention to what we're doing in a, in a clear growth area. So you look at something like this. I know the way you think. You say it's only a matter of time before this thing sort of um, shows its true hand. What are your thoughts on not necessarily NVIDIA granularly, but the NASDAQ, the NASDAQ in the light of what I just said? Yeah, I think the market in general, right? So the NASDAQ kind of has the, quote, higher growth companies. Now, many of them are now cutting employees, so I wouldn't call those necessarily high growth. But they still, some of those are the sexiest game in town. So if you need to invest in the U.S. markets and you want any type of growth, this is maybe where you go. But what's amazing to me is that, yes, charts are great. You know, they, they can be a great tool, certainly a great tool when you get to very important points in the cycle. And it doesn't take much just looking at that chart, not being a technician, to create a very bearish trend very quickly by breaking through those numbers, whatever those yellow numbers are, on high volume down. And then we'll be back here a week later and say, well, now the chart looks bad. What do you do? I just think you're right. I think that the quality of what's been leading are that those names are just expensive. I think it's just a scarcity value on certain names that people are willing to pay a premium when and if that does end, we shall see. But I think it will. Here's an interesting comment from one of our viewers. And Andrew's here, I think, almost every day. And he says, why are you guys so focused on understanding the market rather than making money? And that's a fascinating comment. And I understand it. And I'll say this. Yeah. Would you rather be right or make money? That's an age-old line that I've heard since I started working in 1986. It, the, the cerebral out there tend to sort of focus on things when there are opportunities to make money. My pushback would be, I think you have to understand the market in large part to make money. Now, there are periods of time where you could throw darts and do really well. And quite frankly, um, you know, over the last couple of years, that's been true in spades. But I think, and, and this, correct me if I'm wrong, Danny, but I think we're entering a period of time where in order to make money, I think you have to understand what's going on in the market. What are your thoughts on that? That question sums up this entire market. I've always talked about this market has been about immediate gratification. What, what are we doing now? What, what's happening today? And what we're trying to do is help people for the longer term. So for the short-term investor that wants to trade on the algos take over on a certain word of quantitative easing, quantitative tightening, hawkish, dovish, whatever it may be. Sure, but I'm not going to trade like that because I think that's a fool's game over the long period of time. You cannot time the market short term. So taking a step back, buying a company with very good fundamentals, right? Buy, buying the market you think are inflection points where you know over a longer period of time you can kind of set it and forget it. Mm -hmm. Granted, this is not a set it and forget it type market because there is so much going on, right? And, and company, company specific matter. So that comment right there is the definition of everything that's been happening. And the last piece of that last thing is the Fed doesn't have your back any longer is the next. Well, that's sentence. for sure. Who was that, that cat that said it in the forget it cow? It's like Ron Popeil or something. 
don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Those were great late night commercials. I would yes. stumble home back in yeah. my early days and, and ch- turn on channel nine or something, hoping for a late night Ranger game and find one of those, but I digress. Let's take a look at the VIX. And again, we say it all the time, Danny, we're not advocating trading the VIX, but we use the VIX as sort of a gauge. Um, I don't know if these single day, these zero day options, I mean, you can probably speak far more intelligently than I about these things. If somehow um, this foray into those instruments is dulling volatility in some way, I can't figure it out, but I'll tell you, although historically we're probably still rich in terms of where the VIX has been, given the environment that we find ourselves in, I still think the VIX is way too cheap. I know there were somebody um, made reference to one of the whales buying long dated, I want to say 50 strike VIX calls. You know, we'll see how that plays out. But, you know, one of the things I've said for a while, I don't think you see capitulation until we get that VIX back to about 35, which if you look at this chart, each time we've gotten there has been an opportunity not to sell stocks, but to buy stocks. So, here we are as a teenager, and, and, and I think um, the market's underestimating some of the headwinds out there. And I'm looking at, again, through the VIX. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's pretty much just an inversion to the S&P. But you're right. You never really get a chance to trade it because it goes straight up in a line when it's time, right? So I think this is a tool. Say, hey, if you're looking to buy put options, because really this is, you know, in terms of factor of the, the, the price of options in general, calls or puts for that matter. But Obviously, you look at this chart and know there's not much downside to the VIX from here. So what does that tell you? That tells you vol is too cheap. In my opinion, it's too cheap measured what I think where the S&P is going to go. Mm-hmm. So buying S&P puts here with the VIX that looks like that is probably not the worst trade, but it's completely inverted. So is it the cart before the horse guy, you know, horse before the cart when it comes to the S&P, you know, and the VIX and what drives it? So. This is a good tool to look at. I don't think there's any downside in this. Let's take a look at two years. As while we look at the two-year yield, David Grisco saying, guy with a mohawk, exclamation point. Yeah, you know what? I'm 59 freaking years old, but I can still sport the mohawk because that's the way I am. I'm a bit of a, as Danny will tell you, I'm a little out there. But again, that's neither here nor there. This move into two-year yields, it's been remarkable. I mean, here we are. I mean, we're, this is something that we didn't talk about um, forever because there was no reason to talk about it. And now here we are, you know, trading through 5%. And we're going to talk about the inversion in a second. But what is this telling you? And I I want to sort of really break this down because I think people are underestimating. We can look at the 10-year as well, and then we can go to the inversion. But I don't think the market is taking into consideration nearly enough what rising rates mean, rising at this speed, and what this inversion, as you pointed out before we started the show, you know, talking about an inversion we haven't seen in now 43 or so years. So what are your thoughts here as we sort of scroll through? Yeah, I remember in May of June of 2006, that's kind of where that is kind of going, right? It was like, I think we were at 5.17%, I think in 2006, and it takes time. What happened then? The housing market slowed down. What's happening now? The housing market slowed down. What happened then? Price for what people are willing to pay for mortgage loans, auto loans, credit card receivables, right? Gets a little bit more expensive. They're not willing to pay as much rates are that high. We are just now beginning to see that impact. The biggest difference here, Guy, in all of this is that there is no QE. There's QT mm-hmm. going on. There is no TALF. There, are, there is no TARP. There are no things that are coming to the rescue. And I think that has been the one thing that's been holding this market is this moral hazard in people's memory or the belief that the Fed has your back or the government has your back. And this is why I think we're in for such a rude awakening here and why it matters. It's not just a signal of where the Fed is going. It's actually an actual number that is an input cost to Many different products which are out there in, in circulation. Does it affect people every single day? No. But over a long period of time, absolutely impacts buying a home. 
buying a car, whatever you want to finance. This is a financialized economy that is massively exposed to that chart you just showed. So people will say, so I'll play devil's advocate, although you know that I agree with you, but people will say, wait a second, you know, we've seen rates much higher than this historically, and we've always managed to sort of muddle through it. And I, I guess to a certain extent, I understand that. I personally, the market at some point will figure out, and so will the economy, how to deal with rates at these levels. Again, to me, it's the speed with which rates have gotten here. And almost more importantly, it's the fact that for many people, they've never seen this type of environment. And I don't think they understand what valuations, how much different they can be or should be, I should say, in an environment where rates are going higher with this speed uh, of this magnitude. So what are your thoughts on that? There's too much debt. Um, there's too much government debt. There's too much corporate debt. There's too much consumer debt. And it's growing by the day. Savings rates are too low. So I violently disagree that we've been here before. This is an un this is uncharted territory, in my opinion. The economy, like I just said, is so financialized. The global system is so mm -hmm. financialized. The ability to cut rates doesn't exist because of where inflation is. We are on the other side of this, right? So you can talk all you want. We've seen what's going on with Bank of England last fall. We're seeing what's happening right now with Bank of Japan. We're stuck. They're stuck. We're all stuck. So you can't print money to solve this issue. And that's what we've been used to for so long. So I just think this is unprecedented. And I think the traders that have been around as long as you and I have have seen these type of things. And it's not, listen, we need to have a normal cycle. We need to have a recession. We need to have a clean. Don't be so scared about it. We're going to find the right price for assets to clear. We never did that in 2009, 10, and 11, right? That was, and I'm not saying we're going to have any type of that type of sell off or any financial crisis like that. But there are zombie companies that never should have made it through. And we're going to have to basically, those companies are going to have to go by the wayside because the government doesn't have their back. It's interesting you say that. And that's a point I made when Fast Money just started, that if you think the leverage in this, and now I'm going back now 13 or so, 14 years, 15 years. If you think the leverage in the system went away, folks, think again. This, the leverage got moved. And you know, you talked about the debt levels. You see it in the terms of the Fed's balance sheet, which got to nearly $10 trillion. So the leverage didn't go away. It just got moved. And I would submit it got moved to an entity that's probably the least qualified to deal with it. Now, I'll say this, you know, being if I'm being honest, I'm shocked at, to this point at least, how well things have gone. When I say well, I'm looking basically through the lens of the market and the fact that the credit markets haven't seized. But I guess my question to you is, as they try to unwind this balance sheet, and as again, twos, tens now north of 1%. You know, we've been talking about this, Danny, since last summer, getting to these levels. Well, here we are. What, is, what does it mean? Talk to folks why they, this should be concerning, because I've heard so many people say it's different this time. And I've pushed back and say, yeah, it is different this time. It's actually worse. So what are your thoughts on that? This chart, if you showed me this chart and then, you know, showed me where the two year was that made this chart actually work and compute, I would say we're going into a massive recession. Why would that be? So you made the comment earlier, is the two year at 5% a huge deal? No, not if you have economic growth and the 10 year yield are six, seven, 8% because it's telling you they're expecting growth in the future. This is telling you they believe what the Fed is doing and where rate, short term rates are going to be are going to create a slowdown. So we haven't been at these levels since 1980, right? We were in 1980, I think we hit negative 2%, by the way. I think it was almost a 15% two year and a 13% 10 year. Can you imagine that environment right now? No one else can, no one can imagine what it would be like to finance your home and cars at those type of rates. That being said, this is portending. So if you showed me all these charts and didn't show me the S&P, 
I would tell you the S&P was at 3,000. Right. You know, it's the fact of where the, what is fair value. Fixed income always leads equities. It always has. It always will. Well, on the corporate balance sheet stuff, it leads equities in every aspect. So I'll go with this is the chart I will pay most attention to. And I've said before, don't, you know, the market's been rallying on 10-year yields actually coming in. My thought has been you want the 10-year yields to start to go up, to catch mm -hmm. up here so that the belief will be growth will be there. And it's this is telling you something completely different. And I agree that this is where we should be, negative 100. And I think it's going to get worse. The only reason I'm going to ask this question is because I know you have thoughts on it and two people have asked. So Mike J, any comment on Credit Suisse in Europe? And then Chad Tunis says Credit Suisse, the largest holder, sold 100% of their holdings. And you've you've had a lot of um, thoughts on some of these European banks that I got to tell you something. The only reason we don't talk about them on Fast Money or on CNBC is, as much as we should is because they're European banks. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't be talking about them. So what are your quick thoughts there? Yeah, listen, the, it wasn't just Credit Suisse, it was Deutsche Bank. There was a lot, SockGen. And whenever there's a crisis, it seems like the European banks find their way. They weren't as regulated, um, stringent as we were. They are. They may. They might be now, and there's just cleanup going on. I think a lot of the fallout for Credit Suisse, Greensill, what have you, you know, all the other products which they had on the market, or ties in with SoftBank and, and so forth, have, have basically come home to roost. And it's a sad because Credit Suisse, as you and I know, DLJ was probably the best brokerage firm that existed on Wall Street in the 80s and 90s. It was I was at Oppenheimer back then. We wished we were DLJ, right? And that culture was great. The culture's been unwound at this point, right? They're effectively shutting down the US market. So, you know, keep in mind that in 2008 and 9 when we were going through our crisis here in the US with our banking system, it was 2010 and 11 that you really saw the fallout over in Europe. Now, they've since put in Basel 3 very strict standards kind of what we have. So those type things I think are contained, but I just think culturally the European banks had a different way of doing business over time. They took a little bit more risk and we'll see. I'm sure there's a lot more, you know, many more shoes to drop. I haven't done enough work specifically on the Europe, European banks, but it's just, it's, it's, it's different. Yeah. And, and people will say there's, you know, there's no systemic risk and I can't speak intelligently about it either. But what I'll tell you is, you know, as much as that people are talking about deglobalization out there, the banking system, there's still a lot of interrelations without question. And the thing we need to talk about now, because we're going to talk about gold in a second and this goes back to your Bank of Japan comments, is the U.S. dollar. So let's take a look at the dollar, which has gotten itself off the mat in a pretty meaningful way since the beginning of February. And, you know, the dollar, it's so, it's so funny. Again, it's something we rarely talked about in the early days of fast money. And I'll say this, when I started my career, if the U.S. dollar to move a percent against the yen over the course of a month, let alone the course of five minutes, that was a big deal. Now these dollar moves are just, in my opinion, completely out of control. So dollar seems to be trending back to the 200-day moving average. We'll see what happens if and when we get there. But talk about the U.S. dollar and what your thoughts are. And at a certain point, because we're going to look at gold, uh, will those re the historic relationships decouple? In other words, a rising dollar no longer be bearish for gold. But let's just talk about the dollar quickly if you have thoughts, Danny. Yeah, just the dollar, obviously, is, I think is trading with – so. Back up a day ago, um, ECB is talking about three 50-point rate hikes, right, going to happen concurrently. We were thinking 25 bips even 24 hours ago. So really, it's a factor on the margin of, of what that change is, right? Bank of Japan, obviously, they're trying to defend their currency at, at any chance that they get. How do they do that? They sell our 10-year bonds, right? And that's why our yields, some of the reason our yields move higher. So I don't know what the current basket of the DXY is right now versus the euro versus the sterling versus the yen, but really it's a factor of whatever the Fed is doing on that on that particular day. And 
you can pretty much track that DXY with Fed Fund Futures, right? I can tell you just looking at where the expectations went starting at the beginning of February when we started to get some of this inflationary data come out. And that's really all it is. And so it's going to be volatile. Um, and does it benefit certain companies in the U.S.? Sure. You know, a strong dollar. Does it hurt others? Yes. And so at the end of the day, though, risk on assets. Sorry, guy. I was going to no, say, no. we all know that a weak dollar helps risk assets. And Without so, question. And, and I'll say this because we've talked about it on on the tape, our podcast that drops each Friday, as Dan Nathan would say, at your favorite podcast store. But I've said this and people push back on me, but I'm pretty convinced. I think there's a I think behind closed doors in Japan, there's all kinds of uh, consternation in terms of what's going on. And again, Bank of Japan intervened in their currency. Um, I want to say now it's probably five or six months ago when dollar yen was just off to the races. I don't know if we can pull up a dollar yen chart. So I apologize, guys, if I'm asking you to do something we can't do. But they intervened because they had to. And that worked. And then a few months later, they effectively intervened in their currency vis-a-vis their bond market. Now, if the yen starts to weaken again, that's going to pose all kinds of problems. Now, I don't want to get too in the weeds on this shit, but. I think you, I think if you really want to watch one of the many things you should be watching right now, in my opinion, is what's going on with JGBs and what's going on with dollar yen. Thoughts on that, Danny? Yeah, for sure. They have to pick their poison. I mean, their inflation is running now, I think, north of 4% or close to it and expected to keep, right? Yet they're 10 years capped with their yield curve control at 0.5% because there's too much debt, right? There's $10 trillion in debt. Their debt to GDP is over two and a half times. Mm-hmm. So they have to do something. The other problem is they import more than they export it. At, at this point. So a weakening yen really hurts their hurts their economy and hurts their company. So they're doing whatever they can to basically artificially depress rates, right? And fundamentally support the yen. And so that can only work for so long, guy. Um, they only have so much ammunition, right? And at some point that's going to matter. And if you said one of the things that could quote break in this market, it's that you wake up one day and the yen's back to 145 to 150. You know, I think we're currently sitting around 136, 137. Or for some reason, the 10-year yields just go right through those point that 0.5% because the Bank of Japan decided, you know what? We're going to lay off. can't hold it anymore. So that is something to watch. And I think the repatriation of dollars back into yen, right, or out of U.S. products, call them treasuries, back into their markets could have a big impact here, especially on our treasuries. They are the largest foreign holder of U.S. treasuries in front of Japan. So it, it and, you know, and people will say you guys are cherry and I'm, this is not directed at you. This is directed at me. You're cherry picking, you're putting all the bad shit out there. You're trying to, we're not trying to scare anybody. You know, we, we put it straight down the middle. I mean, you say it all the time. I mean, you want to come in and be bullish. And, and yeah. I know that's true. The, 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 not the problem, but the environment suggests that, you know, you're looking around and you're seeing the things that a lot of people are seeing. And the only thing that's sort of keep, keeping people, I guess giving people hope is the fact that the stock market is hanging in as well as it does. And I think if the bull case here, before we look at gold, if the bull case here is that too many people are bearish, well, that's a shitty bull case, in my opinion. Thoughts on that? Listen, the market is a reinforcement mechanism. If you're positive and the market's up, it reinforces these positive thoughts. The problem is when it goes down, which I believe makes more sense, whether that's going to happen or not as a whole term things fall into place. And when that narrative matches, when you say, okay, 210 inversion, I wasn't paying attention. Earnings coming down, I wasn't paying attention. But the market goes down, the, the whole market's a puzzle. And all you gotta do is try to figure out enough mm-hmm. of the puzzle that you can see it, you know, like in No Way Out. That's Yuri, 
I just, I, I see that, I, I, you know, I see that it's jury. So once that makes sense, everything kind of falls into place. And to your point, the market doesn't make sense to me, at least. The U.S. stock market is the best market in the world. And I think it's the best regulations for the most part. There's certain companies out there we won't go into that don't have the correct policing of, of their accounting and so forth. But for the most part, it is the safe place to come, right? It's a structured environment. Rule of law, for the most part, is pretty good. So, yes, it's the sexiest game in town. And I think that's why it's been holding up for so long. And this is really just between a soft landing, a hard landing, a no landing, and all that stuff we keep hearing about. In my opinion, cards speak, fundamentals matter. And you can't have rates, short-term rates like this, this high. You can't have the Fed raising rates 5% in a period of just over, you know, what will be 13 months or so forth and not have repercussions in an economy, in a system that is so dependent on financializing itself. And that's it. There's nothing else. It's pretty simple. And the last thing I'll say, Guy, is I saw the end of the world, basically of the financial world in 2007, 8, and 9 firsthand. I saw what was happening. We stopped it from happening. But now it's time to cleanse some of that stuff that we never dealt with. And that's the problem I have by letting go. And that's what does not allow me to be bullish. Right. And that goes back to my comment about leverage. By the way, um, No Way Out is a great movie. Kevin Costner. I mean, I love Kevin Costner. But in, in your opinion, Danny, where does Gene Hackman rank in the actors of our time? Top 10? Because I'm he's in my top 10. He's in some of my favorite movies. So yes, I'll, I'll put him up there. De definitely top 20. Top 10? Yeah, somewhere in the and I'll tell you, there was about a five-year period of time where Sean Young, who played a prominent role in that movie, was uh, the envy of uh, many folks, myself included. Let's take a look at the gold chart because it all comes back. Not it all comes back. You know, gold's getting bludgeoned today, it, it, and it makes sense. People say, wait a second, if inflation is a problem and the Fed is pointing out that it's a problem, why is gold getting battered? Well, it's, it's getting battered because they're trying to combat it. Here's my point, and, and I think you would agree with this. Central banks continue to buy gold. In 2022, I think it was a record amount of gold central banks bought, as far back as I think data has been collected in terms of ounces and in terms of dollar amount. It did not manifest itself in the price. Gold's getting whacked today. I think you and I both share a view that it's just a matter of time before gold gets off the mat. And maybe it's on the back of like a Bank of Japan flare-up or whatever term you want to use. But what are your thoughts here on gold before we 5,000? Yeah, I was hopeful. I'm still hopeful, but... Last week, um, about this time, gold was acting actually very well in an inflationary environment. Today is in-your-face hawkishness, and it's obviously taking a hit here. I don't know what the volumes are, physical gold versus synthetic, and you know, you don't really own gold if you own GLD. You're just you don't, it, right? and, I, and you know so what? We'll do a whole yeah. podcast we'll do a on, that. on that. But yeah. that being said, this to me, I just buy it on weakness nonstop, and I don't think this is a collapse. I mean, I, this is you know, relative. We've seen a ton of volatility. In, you know, in gold over the last several months. And I think we'll keep seeing it, but I'm a buyer in the weakness on gold. And when it does start to work in an inflationary environment, I, I don't think there's a cap. That chart, look at that. What is that? In March, 2000, in, in March of 22, we were north of 2000. I don't see why we won't get back there. I agree with you. And again, just to be fair, you know, if you had told me all the things would be taking place today, Danny played this game with the S&P and you said about gold, where will gold be? I would have said we're at least 2,500, if not a 3,000 handle, but we're far from it. Let's take a look at crude oil. You share my views in this as well in terms of energy stocks. Uh, the commodity, if we look at a crude chart, can't get out of its own way. I mean, you go back to December and we keep banging up against this 81 level and seemingly failing, um, those, those lows seem to hold as well. So I guess what I'm saying is we're in a pretty defined range. I will tell you, I am still bullish of the commodity, although common sense in this chart suggests otherwise,
which leads me back to the energy stocks, which are having a difficult day today, understandably so. But I still think hold some value. What are your thoughts there, Danny? Yeah, if you're a person that's positive on the S&P, doesn't believe anything we're saying or why, you don't want to be bullish, then you have to own energy stocks because that means we are going to have a soft landing. That means that things aren't going to get as bad as I think. And again, not to bring their names up, but talking to Porter and Vinny over the last few days, they're buying Petrobras at one and a half times EBITDA. I mean, there are some names out there that are extremely cheap. They come with geopolitical risk, right? Mm -hmm. They come with a lot of volatility, but look at the single names. Instead of trying to trade the commodity, look at the names and you don't have to have oil go up for a lot of these names to really work and return a lot of capital over time. So we are currently battling. So the 10-year yield makes sense in conjunction with, you know, relative to the 210 spread, I should say, where oil is having trouble here because we are portending a slowdown, in my opinion, coming. So I love Danny Moses. I love your intellect. I love your rigor. I love everything about you other than the fact that, you know, you're some closet Met fan, but that's, you know, for another show at another time. Spring training in earnest now, and I'll tell you, my Bronx Bombers look poised for a run to, to you know, where we should be, I would say. You know, th things we saw back in 09, um, you Met fans out there, it's an aging rotation. The Knicks, by the way, Danny, playing tr that NBA game on Sunday night, that Knicks-Celtic game, prime time on national television in the Boston Garden, double overtime, Knicks victory. I haven't seen something like that in 20 years. So the Knicks are for real, but that's another podcast for another time. Danny, thank you for joining me. Uh, we're going to see you tomorrow. IRL, as they say, we have an event coming up. But that's it for today's Market Call. I want to thank CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. Obviously, fact set. Thank you, Danny Moses, for making the time. I know the audience loved it. I will be back tomorrow with the great Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting. We'll see you later, folks.